0: Thanks Joe and team. Yeah, that, was, that was so good. I just asked Taylor if he wanted to preach. He said no. This is a little bit of an unusual circumstance um, because it is Palm Sunday and we are going to keep plugging along in Daniel. Which brings us to Daniel chapter 7 which is the part of Daniel where most people stop reading. Uh, when, when, they're, when they're reading Daniel, which is after the lion's den. Um, but uh, I actually do believe that what is taught here in Daniel 7 is applicable uh, both to our celebration of Palm Sunday and also uh, next week uh, as we celebrate Easter and Jesus' resurrection and victory over the grave. So I'm going to read this morning... Uh, From Daniel chapter 7, I'm going to read verses 1 through 8, and then I am going to read uh, and and conclude on verse 15. So that's on page 744 uh, in your Bible, if you want to turn there and follow along as I read. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads. And dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions. And behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. I considered the horns and behold... There came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. And now verse 15. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious and the visions of my head alarmed me. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true. We pray, Father, that you would teach us great things from it this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. It was all the way back in 1987 that the great band R.E.M. announced that it is the end of the world as we know it, but they feel fine. Uh, I remember that song. I loved that song. I loved R.E.M. when I was in high school. And, you know, it was a song in many ways that was reflecting on chaos, the chaos of the world that they saw and that they experienced it. And they sung it in kind of a chaotic way. And, you know, the truth is, for much of my life, or at least much of my, you know, kind of conscious life, there has been a fascination, I think this is part of human history, this is not that new, but there's been a fascination on the end of the world, right? I mean, just think about uh, what, what Hollywood produces. You can tell a lot about what captures the imagination of the culture by what people make movies about and by what people make TV shows about. And About every year, there's some kind of movie or some kind of show about the end of the world. You know, in the last 20 to 25 years, the world has been threatened, at least in terms of, uh, uh, of popular culture. The world has been threatened by aliens. Uh, the world has been threatened by viruses that didn't have a cure that uh, were being spread. The world has been threatened by terrorists uh, finding nuclear weapons. Uh, the world has been threatened by artificial intelligence running amok. And probably most of all, the world has been threatened more than anything else by zombies. Zombies are everywhere. But though the plots are different and the agents of destruction are different, they, these stories generally follow a similar narrative arc. There is something that threatens the survival of humanity. And it seems like it cannot be defeated. It seems indestructible. It seems too powerful. But then, either a lone hero, very often, or sometimes a group of people band together and they find a solution to this problem, and they save the world. Now today, as we've already talked about, is Palm Sunday. It's the day that the Christian church commemorates what has come down through history to be known as Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. This is when Jesus and those who had been following him on his three-year journey of teaching and working miracles and doing other things had been traveling from Nazareth, from the north, down to Jerusalem, and he was about to enter into Jerusalem. And those who were following Jesus, who had been walking with him, who had been listening to him teach... They lay their cloaks out before him, they got palm branches off trees, they waved them and they shouted, Hosanna to the king of Israel, Hosanna in the highest. They had an expectation for what Jesus was about to do. Their expectation was that Jesus was going to go into Jerusalem, he was going to gather an army around himself, he was going to rally them to himself and he was going to defeat the Romans who were occupying Jerusalem which to the Jewish people was just the worst possible thing that could happen. So they thought he was going to go in, raise an army, chase out the Romans, inhabit Jerusalem, give the land back uh, to the people of Israel. But that is not what happened. Jesus walked into Jerusalem. He caused chaos for about a week in pretty much everything that he did. And then he was executed as a criminal on the cross. There's actually a similarity between this story of what Jesus did on that first Palm Sunday and this vision that we read about in Daniel chapter 7. Because Daniel 7, at its heart, is all about encouraging God's people. This is not just mystical um you know, images and symbols or a puzzle to be put together. this is all about encouraging you as a follower of Jesus. It's about encouraging you to live faithfully in a world that is actually waging war against the purposes of God. and you are able to live faithfully, you are able to trust, you're able to live with hope because God is in control of all things and because God will ultimately defeat sin, and the devil, and all who would do evil. So Daniel 7 tells a story in detail under two headings. First, the world at present is under the sway of evil. Right now, when we look at the world, when, when we see what is happening in the world, when we see what is happening with ourselves, when we just see what is before us, it looks chaotic. It's under the sway of evil. But second, God will ultimately defeat his enemies And he will establish his everlasting kingdom. And those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ will inherit that kingdom with them. Now, this morning we're going to consider the first of these uh, with some hope at the end. So don't despair. But we're going to talk about the world as we see it. The world as it is. Ourselves as we are under the sway of evil. But that's going to lead us next week to consider the great victory of God over sin and over death, and all of God's people who trust in Christ, inheriting eternal life with him. That is what the resurrection of Jesus leads us to. Now, before I jump in, and I'm going to t- I don't do this all the time. I'm going to do this once, and then the rest of the sermons until we get to the end of, of Daniel, I'll just refer back to this. But I, 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 when, I need to go into Sunday school mode here for just a second. Because we've got to get oriented to what is happening here. Because something changed, you know, in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 7 marks the place in this book where the genre changes. It changes from essentially what is a story, a true story, a narrative story, to what is known as apocalyptic. Now, apocalyptic is just a word that kind of is derived from the Greek that means Revelation it doesn't always mean that it's something that deals with like the end times or the end of the world, but because of the purposes of Daniel and later on in the New Testament in revelation, because of the purposes of revelation, it does refer to that in these two cases but but this is really important to understand. Daniel chapters one through six, the author is telling a story of historical events where we can discern God's purposes in those events, in the action of the story. By and large, the first six chapters of Daniel tell what have become known as pretty um, well-known stories. Daniel and his friends are captured in Jerusalem by the Babylonians. They are taken into exile in Babylon. They are sent to serve in Nebuchadnezzar's court, they refuse to eat his food, but God sustains them. Nebuchadnezzar has dreams that nobody else can interpret, and Daniel proves himself as one who whose God is the most powerful because he's able to interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dreams. And then there's the great story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego going into the fiery furnace but being rescued by God. And then there's the story of of Daniel being sent to the lion's den under Darius, but again being rescued by God. But here in chapter 7, something changes. And things start to get a little crazy. And it stays that way to the end of the book which is why most people stop reading here Um, and if I was smart I would have stopped preaching here but here we go what's happening here is there is a shift in literature there is a genre shift from narrative to apocalyptic and apocalyptic as a type of literature has several identifiable characteristics first Apocalyptic literature involves visions. These are, these are visions that are given to people. Apocalyptic visions involve imagery. So right off the bat, what we're dealing with here are pictures more than words. We're dealing with pictures. It's like a movie that is kind of playing out in our head. And the reason why these visions are, are, are images are so important is that they portray things that are so Powerful, they are so amazing. They are so difficult to describe that mere language doesn't do it justice. And the imagery in apocalyptic visions are largely symbolic. This is where people get confused. They're largely symbolic. These images represent something else. So you're not really looking for a creature rising out of the sea that has iron teeth. That creature that rises out of the sea that has iron teeth represents something another reality. It stands for something else. I'm spending some time here because this is really important. The Bible attests that all scripture is God-breathed, which means that the Bible is inspired by God, it is without error, and it is absolutely authoritative in the life of the believer. But we get confused about what the Bible actually teaches sometimes when we don't distinguish the type of literature that we're reading because the Bible contains several different types. There is history like Joshua marching around Jericho and the walls coming, tumbling down or the book of Acts seeing what God does in the first century church. There is poetry Like Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Is God really a shepherd or is he like a shepherd? It's poetry. There is wisdom literature. There is literature in the Bible that teaches you how the world normatively works because the world is created by God. This is what you would read in books like uh, Proverbs or Ecclesiastes. There's prophecy which is a combination both of forthtelling and foretelling. It's not all about predicting the future. Sometimes prophecy is about God's instrument telling His people what He wants them to hear. There are epistles, letters, or sermons delivered to churches addressing real life situations that they are facing in real time, not out of a vacuum, like real letters to real people, like Romans or Ephesians. And there's apocalyptic image-driven and symbolic visions delivered to one of God's people to reveal something powerful. And in this case, and in the case of Revelation, the cosmic battle between good and evil that ultimately takes place at the end of time to remind us right now there's a practical purpose for this, to remind us right now that no matter how crazy the world seems, no how crazy our lives seem, God is in control. He is winning the battle. He wins the battle in the end, and his people find eternal rest with him. So, if you're reading Daniel or you're reading Revelation and you're treating it simply like a mystery novel or like a puzzle that if you can just get all of the right pieces in all of the right places and if you get all of the right pieces in all of the right places, you can, you know, you can figure out like, what's going to happen later on. You're actually missing the point because the point is to give you encouragement right now. Daniel had this vision Why? Why did God give this vision to Daniel? Because they were in exile in Babylon and it looked like God was being defeated by a pagan leader. And the vision is given to Daniel to tell the people that no, that is not true. Despite your present circumstances, despite what you see right in front of your face, God is still in control and he will win. Why do we have the book of Revelation? Because John the apostle who was already uh, exiled on the island of Patmos because of his faith, was experiencing, along with the early Christians at the end of the first century, the first wave of intense persecution. And so he gets a vision from God to remind him that the evil that they are experiencing and the pain and the suffering that they are experiencing is not the end of the story. God defeats those enemies And God's people inherit eternal life. So here, what we can learn from Daniel's vision uh, in chapter 7 of this book is really two things. First, there is a cycle of evil, earthly empires that are intent upon destroying God's purposes and his people in the world. And second there are powerful spiritual forces that underlie those empires that wage war against God and his people. In other words, there's what we see and what we experience, but there's also something that we don't see that we still experience that underlies it. So let's take a little bit of a look at these visions that Daniel sees in chapter 7 uh, of, of this book. So the first image that we receive in Daniel 7 is that of a turbulent sea, a vast ocean that is whipped up, as the text says, by the four winds of heaven, and it is broiling. It is just waves crashing into each other. It is a broiling, turbulent, chaotic sea. So in its original context, this image would have been enough to strike fear into Daniel and to anybody that that he was telling this vision to. Why is that? was because very often in the Bible, and even at this time that he was writing in the literature of the Babylonians, the sea was an image of chaos and wickedness and hardship and very hard things of danger. Just remember some of the things that we read about the sea in the Bible. Back in Exodus chapter 14, God parts the Red Sea so the people of Israel can cross it. But then, when Pharaoh, the army of Pharaoh, tries to chase them, what happens? The sea comes crashing down on them the roiling, roiling sea. It is a place of danger. In Psalm 18, God rebukes chaos, the chaos of the sea, and he brings order out of that chaos. Even one of Jesus' most well-known and most famous miracles happened where? On the sea, the Sea of Galilee that was in a frenzy that his disciples thought was going to kill them because it was enraged until Jesus silenced it. What this means is that very often the world and our lives feel very out of control, very chaotic, very dangerous. Do you ever experience this? Is this when you just see what is in front of your eyes? When you see what is happening to yourself or to people that you love, doesn't it sometimes just feel out of control, dangerous, scary? And from a purely outward vantage point, that was exactly the world that Daniel and his friends were living in, in Babylon, a world that felt out of control And dangerous. And then, out of this turbulent sea, this place of chaos and this place of danger, emerge four frightening beasts. Now, off the bat, we recognize that what these creatures represent is God's fallen creation creation that is warped and marred by sin why do I say that it is because none of these creatures appear in the form that they appear in this vision when God is ordering creation in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 where he creates the beasts of the field as the text says according to their kinds he creates them orderly here we have hybrids we have mutants I mean this is uh these are animals that are not found in God's created order And this is symbolic of the effects of sin in the world. Because human beings have rebelled against God, have sinned against him, creation itself is subjected to fallenness. The apostle Paul himself says this in Romans chapter 8, that the whole of creation is groaning in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. Because creation itself has been marred by sin and instead of submitting ourselves to God and his word we fight and we scrap and we claw for power and we want to bring people in submission to us and even to destroy them and that is what each of these beasts endeavor to do each one is symbolic of earthly empires that rise up to claim power over all of the earth that's what they want they want to rule the world each one subjecting human beings to exile or torture or death. The first beast that rises up out of the sea is in the shape of a lion, but with eagle's wings on its backs. That's not normal. It takes the form of a human being after the wings are plucked off it and it stands upon the land. This is representative of Babylon, the kingdom that Daniel is subjected to at that moment. It's very similar to the dream that Daniel interpreted back in Daniel chapter 2. Now the second beast that rises up, is in the shape of a bear. It's either a bear that is poised and ready to attack or a bear with some kind of deformity. Um, I don't know exactly what it means that it was raised up on one side, but there's something about this bear that is not like normal. This bear is violent. It rises up out of the sea with three ribs already clenched beneath its teeth, the ribs of its last victim, but it is not done yet. It is given a commandment to go forward and to devour much flesh. So if you're moving sequentially down the path, this would be the kingdom that defeats and replaces Babylon, which is Medea, Persia. This is when Darius was leading Babylon. Darius is the one who sent Daniel to the lion's den. The third beast took the form of a leopard with four wings on its back and eyes on the wings. Now this is a representative of an empire or a kingdom that would move with great speed. That would kind of blitz the earth. And most commentators believe that this is the kind of conquering you know, speed with which the, the Greek forces conquered the known world at that time. Mainly to Alexander the Great's conquering of the world, the known world in 4th century B.C. But the fourth beast is the most terrifying of all because it was like a hybrid creature and machine. I, I forgot that this was actually in the Bible, but a creature with iron teeth, and it's hard to say iron. I'm just going to say it like a Mississippian. That's how I do it. It's iron. Uh, the, the, the fourth beast is the most terrifying of all. Uh, this this hybrid with 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 iron teeth that crushed and feet that stomped everything that escaped. The teeth it had ten horns, and these ten horns, you know, had uh, three more more kind of came in and and grew, and they had mouths and eyes. It's very weird, but but horns at this time symbolize both power and pride. It says in the text that they had mouths speaking great things. They were speaking great boasts. Many commentators believe that the fourth beast symbolizes the Roman Empire, the one that defeated the Greek Empire and became the most powerful empire that the world had ever known up to that point. This, by the way, was the empire into which Jesus was born when Caesar Augustus reigned over that part of the world. Pride, arrogance, boasting were certainly part of the Roman Empire and actually ultimately led several centuries later to their downfall. All right, so what in the world do we make out of all of this? Is this simply a prophecy? of four distinct sequential historical kingdoms. And so you could say that after the fall of the Roman Empire, this part of the story is over. Well, it's not. Because if you continue reading on in Daniel, it is that fourth beast that the agent of the Lord, who is, uh, spoiler alert, Jesus, comes and fights at the end of time to fully destroy Uh, evil and the devil and usher in an eternal kingdom. So that hasn't happened yet. So that fourth kingdom in some sense is still ongoing. Kingdoms continue to rise with thoughts of domination and thoughts of rule and thoughts of, of defeating the purposes of God and those kingdoms fall and then others rise. It's no coincidence by the way. That to this very day, think about this for a second, human empires, human kingdoms, utilize symbols of predatory animals to mark themselves, to distinguish themselves. Russia and Germany have bears. Great Britain had the lion. China has the dragon. The United States has an eagle with talons predatory animals marking out power and strength. The images may change, but the lust for power and domination in the world continues. Nebuchadnezzar becomes Darius, becomes Alexander the Great, becomes Caesar Augustus, becomes Nero, and on and on and on to Stalin, to Hitler, to Pol Pot, to Kim Jong-il. The point of this vision is that there has been a whole host of empires and kingdoms rising up with thoughts of domination. There were four historical kingdoms from the time of Daniel to the time of Jesus. Babylon, Medea, Persia, Greece, and Rome. But it didn't stop there. It continues to this very day. Every time human beings gather together and rise up to try to dominate or to eradicate a particular population, this vision is playing out from Hitler's Holocaust to Rwandan genocide to the Islamic State. But that's just what lies on the surface because it's what lies under the surface that is most important. Undergirding these human kingdoms are what the Apostle Paul calls the principalities and the powers of the air unseen powerful spiritual forces that are real and exist and they are at war doing battle trying to defeat even losing battle right now trying still to defeat God and his purposes and trying to do his people harm it is real it is happening it is what is undergirding what we see in front of our eyes now I know that is a lot on Palm Sunday. That's a lot. Palm Sunday is supposed to be cute, and, and that wasn't cute. Um, I, I know that. So I want to give you two takeaways, okay, from this. First, this is the first thing that we can really learn from this. Persecution, hardship, difficulty, suffering, pain should be expected for all who trust in Jesus. It is sure to come. The exile of God's people in Babylon and the evil that was perpetrated against them is why God allowed Daniel to have this vision in the first place. The first round of persecution against the early church was why God sent a similar vision to the apostle John. These words are here To encourage you when it looks like God is losing. When it looks like evil is winning. When it looks like you are lost. When things that are happening in the world seem out of control. But even closer to home, when your body begins to fail you or your mind begins to escape you. When what was something that was stable in your life because of Nothing that you did because of powers that are outside of your control blows that up and causes great uncertainty to enter into your life and it feels like everything is completely out of control. You can read these words and you can remind yourself, No, it is not true. God is in control and God is going to win. He is going to defeat sin and evil. And if you belong to Him and you belong to God, by placing your faith, by trusting in Christ Jesus as your Savior and your Lord, you will win with him no matter what it is you go through on this earth. You will be made whole and inherit eternal life. But how does this happen? Well, this is where Palm Sunday comes in. Do you know what happened on that first Palm Sunday? This is actually very cool, I think, to me. On that first Palm Sunday, Jesus walked into the teeth of that fourth kingdom. The beast with iron teeth, the Roman Empire. Jesus walked right into the teeth of. Now his followers thought that he was simply going to beat them militarily. But he came and he walked into that place to do something way more important than that and way more difficult than that and way more powerful than that. He was not only there to defeat them, he was there to ultimately defeat the the principalities of the powers that lay under them. He was going to do battle with the evil one. And he walked right into the teeth of that empire and gave himself up and sacrificed himself. It looked like he lost. It looked chaotic, right? It looked like he was losing, but he was winning. He won on the cross and he validated that victory three days later when he rose again From the dead, Jesus walked into the teeth of that fourth kingdom and said, No more. No. You will not win. Satan, sin, death. You will not have the ultimate say in this world and with my people. And I will ensure that by my death and my resurrection. Kingdoms rise, kingdoms fall, nations rage. Evil and wickedness and war and the desire for domination persist, But God is in control. He defeats sin and the devil and all evil. He does it by sending his son right into the teeth of the battle to die. As you walk through this Holy Week, I would encourage you to walk into it then with that hope before you. No matter what is going on, no matter what is playing out before your eyes god is in control god defeats evil and death jesus himself secures that victory and if you belong to him yours as well let's pray jesus we thank you for the courage that it took to walk into jerusalem on that day knowing exactly where you were going and knowing exactly what lay before you thank you for not turning back Thank you for not turning away. Thank you for coming and for going in and for defeating sin and death and evil. Give us that hope, we pray, that we might walk into whatever it is that we face and will face in this world secure in your victory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.